we are in a series through the book of Genesis, actually the first 11 chapters only of Genesis, and our text is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Uh, Genesis 1-1 is very familiar. In fact, it's probably some of the most famous words in all of the English language. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it would be easy for us to skip from verse 1 to verse 3, right over verse 2, and just see how it sounds. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And it makes perfect sense to be able to flow from verse 1 to verse 3. So you might be asking, well, what's this with verse 2? What is this going on with the earth being without form and void? What's this with darkness being on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters? It would seem that we could just take verse 2 out and we'd be completely fine. Why is this... Why is this shrouded in this mystery? If we believe that every word in the Bible is here for a purpose, we want to unfold it to see what purpose it's here for. And so what we're going to do is proceed in this order. We're going to see, first of all, what God did to understand what God does to understand how God does it. I'm just sketching the mental map for us here that we're going to proceed. We're going to look at first what God did here and then what that teaches about what God continues to do, and then how God does it. So we need to, I'm going to ask you to just put on your thinking caps right now. We need to understand what God did. And in order to understand that, we need to look at the words of the text here and then the way these words are developed in the story. The words, again, we're asking the question, okay, what does this mean, what God did? First of all, we're going to be looking at the words without form and void. Without form, or we could say formless, void or empty, uh, those are two Hebrew words, and they rhyme. It sounds like tohu wavohu. The tohu word, it means um, formless, something lacking structure. Uh, it's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe a city whose walls have just tumbled down, bricks disintegrated, uh, the chaotic condition after a war. If you've seen some of these tragic pictures coming out of uh, Ukraine uh, uh, during the war, you, you see these buildings that have been demolished uh, by missiles. That would be tohu. It's formless. It's destructured. You could also maybe visualize it this way. If some of you got Lego sets for Christmas, now those of you who are really into Lego, you'd never do this, but suppose you ripped open all the little bags of the pieces of Lego and just dumped them in one pile. They're all mixed together. They're not organized. They certainly aren't assembled as they were shown to be in the instructions. That would be tohu. It's, it's formless. It's disorganized. It's chaotic. That is the word that's used here. So whatever is going on here, the earth was without form. Secondly, it's vohu. That means it's empty, it's void. Uh, it would be like coming to your house after a long day of work, opening the door, and everything in your house is gone. What a freakish, horrible experience that would be. Um, kind of like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life coming home there and he opens the door and he's like calling the names of his kids and, and none of the furniture's not there, his wife isn't there, his kids aren't there. It's just empty. It's void. So that's the condition of, of the world that's being described here in verse 2. Uh, we should also note that this emptiness and this formlessness are related. Something that is without form will inevitably become empty. If you take a glass pitcher and you were to rearrange it, it couldn't hold any water. So things that are without form also become void, and that these are very closely related. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The deep refers to this fathomless chasm of, of water. And then the other word that's 
in the last word in this verse, waters, refers to the kind of waters that are useful, like for rivers or springs or canals. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of these waters. Now, as the ancient Israelites would have heard these words, it's likely that they would have thought of some of the creation myths of the Egyptian culture. As I referred to last week, a God that conjures himself up out of a chaotic mass and speaks himself into existence. In contrast to that, the Spirit of God, God himself, is not in this chaotic mass. He's over it. He's sovereign over this all. He's hovering over it like an eagle soaring or a dove fluttering. What does this mean, though? What is this, what's the purpose of this description of the earth being formless and void? I said we're going to explain the meaning of the words, and then we're going to look at the development. What we see, what God does in the days of creation is answering to the formlessness and the emptiness described in verse 2. And I'll show you what I mean. On day one, God begins to separate things and create spaces. That is, he's answering to the disorder of Genesis 1-2. It was formless, and now God begins to make forms. He begins to allow for the sequence of time by separating light from darkness and creating day and night. Now there's a space, there's, there's, now there's organization to this. What does God do on day two? We have described to us the face of the deep, this chaotic, this formlessness. And what God does on day two is he separates the waters above from the waters below and he creates a sky and sea. What is God doing here? He is organizing, he's ordering things. He is answering to the disorder and the formlessness that we re-described in verse 2 by creating spaces. You can think of almost as if he's making a canvas of sort, creating boundaries. Notice the verbs that we have. In verse 6, he says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters. In verse 7, he separates it. So he's making these distinctions and he's creating boundaries. On day 3, he begins to fill then answering to the emptiness, all right? The earth was formless, that it was chaotic, disordered, without organization. Now God begins separating things, creating day and night. On day two, he creates skies and seas. On day three, he fills this earth with vegetation. Now notice how then on day four, day four answers to day one. Because on day one, God had created day and night, a canvas, as it were, on which for God to put stars and the sun and the moon. See what God is doing here? He is creating spaces, organizing, and then filling those spaces. It was tohu wavohu, formless and void. And now God is filling. He's creating this, these spaces and filling it in. So day five corresponds then to day two. Because on day two, God created the skies and the seas, that is the space above and the seas below. And on day five, what does God create? He creates birds to fill the skies and he creates fish to fill the seas. And on day six, day six answers to day three because on day six, God creates human beings and animals, filling the vegetation. So here's what we see God doing. And I'm, I'm asking, I'm, again, this is under the category of what God did. What did God do? God formed and filled. On the days of creation, God was creating these, these canvases, 
these spaces, this organization in the first half of the creation week, which then on the second half he filled. This is what God did. He formed and he filled. Just a few comments on this before I go on to what God does. Notice how he did this. He did it by setting boundaries. He set boundaries between things. He set a boundary between the light and the darkness. He set boundaries between the night and the day. He set boundaries between the sky and the sea and the land and the sea and the water above and the water below. God is creating boundaries and then he is identifying those boundaries. He's giving them names. He's saying, this is night, this is day. This is light, this is darkness. This is land, this is sea. This is sky, this is sea. God creates boundaries, makes spaces, identifies them, and then he gives a value statement about them. He says they're good. He's making boundaries and spaces that then he names as good. This is what God does. Now, if you think about it, form and fullness are built into everything. Structure and what fills that structure. I was just thinking of many areas of life in which, for music, for example, in, in music, you have to have some sort of form. Those of you who know music and, and read music, you know that there's a, a time signature that indicates the, the rhythm. Uh, there has to be a certain, uh, music has to proceed along time, right? A music score without any notes on it, it may have form, but it doesn't have fullness. So you need both the form and the fullness. Uh, you see this with art. You can't just have canvases, but you need something to fill the canvases. And in many areas of life, this is the, this is the case. So that tells us what God did. Now, what God did then teaches us about something that God continues to do. So this is the second main division of what God does. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that the God who created all things continues to uphold the world by the word of his power. So what God did then, he did to teach us about what he continues to do. I'm going to proceed this way under what God does. First of all, note that those words, formless and void, or in the ESV, without form and void, they describe life without God. Now, just to be clear, the description of this comes before sin came into the world. No question about that. And yet, even though this was before sin came into the world, it does describe the effects that sin can bring upon the world. The only other time this phrase, formless and void, occurs in the Bible is in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23, where Jeremiah is reflecting on the devastation that has happened because of sin. And he says this, I looked to the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. Notice the echoes from Genesis 1. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. The fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fruit, fierce anger. It refers, Jeremiah is looking at this, the land of Judea. Because of the sin of God's people, God had allowed these enemies to overtake and destroy them. And he looks at these cities. He's looking at the, the crumbling walls, the lack of organization, and the fact that it's, people have abandoned these cities because they've been ruined. And he's saying, I looked to the earth, and it's formless and void. There's darkness. So formless and void can describe the effects of sin. We find further echoes of this in Jeremiah. When Jeremiah says this, these are pretty famous words, you might recognize them, actually speaking for God, and God is bringing his complaint against his people. He says, my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have dug for themselves cisterns, empty cisterns that can hold no water. You see, in this indictment against the people of God, God is saying this, you've created disorder by abandoning what should be your source of life, digging for yourselves disordered cisterns that will ultimately become empty. You see how the disorder of their pursuits have left them empty in their lives. Sin that is life without God or life lived in rejection of God, looks at God's boundaries, looks at God's identities, what God has named certain things, looks at God's evaluation of things and says, that's not good. That's what sin does. Sin looks at God's boundaries and says, I don't like those boundaries. Looks at the spaces and the order that God has created this world in and says, I'm I'm gonna call those things different things than God called them. Sin always involves disorder that leads to emptying. Sin attempts to redraw boundaries, rename things, and reevaluate what God has evaluated. I want to show you, and this is going to be a little hard section, not hard mentally, but hard, I think, emotionally, because it's going to be a description of sin. By the way, if you don't like that word sin, I know a lot of people kind of object to the use of the word sin, let me just say, you can't not, you can't not use the word sin uh, if, you, if you want to understand human nature. It, we're incomprehensible apart from that category, sin. It's this tendency to pursue what destroys us. How can you understand our human nature, our baffling paradoxical human nature, unless you have this category of sin? Sin disorders. It brings disorder. And how does, how does it do so? Sin disorders morals. It erases the distinction between good and evil. Sin calls evil good and good evil. Sin also disorders truth. It claims that falsehood is truth and truth is falsehood. And sin also disorders loves. This is probably the most sneaky thing about sin because there are many things in our lives that are lovely and should be loved. But sin has been described throughout throughout the ages as a kind of disordered love. There should be one being who is the ultimate object of our love, and that is God himself, because only God can satisfy us. But what we end up doing is we put all our identity and our emotional uh, capital in other things. They could be good things. They could be things that are worth loving, but they're not worth loving more than God is worth loving. That's why sin can be found in an obsession, obsessive allegiance to one's children. These are good things that have been put in the wrong order. Or to your reputation. Is your reputation good? Should it be preserved? Yes. Can it bring you some joy? Yes. But it's not worth making the very center of your life. Wealth, for example. Do you need wealth? Yes, absolutely. Does the Bible give you instructions on how to use wealth? Yes. But love isn't wor- wealth rather isn't worth putting at the center of your life and making it and, and loving it supremely. There's only one thing. There's only one being, and that is God himself that deserves all our love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, the Bible says. And when we yank God out of the center of our life and put something else as the thing that we are loving ultimately, everything else is disordered and spins out of control. Sin is disordered love. It's love in the wrong order, love in the wrong proportions. Sin always disorders. It always confuses. It's always chaotic. It always puts things where they shouldn't be whether it's your career, whether it's sexual pleasure, whether it's your body image, if you put that in place of God, the center cannot hold and everything else falls apart too. And beyond that, sin brings disorder to everything that's valuable. Sin combines things that God has separated and separated, separates things that God combines. Greed, for example, it's a sin. It's a sin because it separates the gift from the giver. Lust 
is a sin because it separates intimacy from commitment. Anxiety is a sin because it separates the future from God's providential control of the future. You see, in every case, what is happening? Sin is wrenching things apart that ought to be put together. Sin is erasing boundaries that ought to be there. Sin is disordered, and it brings disorder. And because of that, sin always brings emptiness. The rearrangement cannot hold. The broken vessel will not hold water. What is disordered cannot be full of life. Sin empties us of peace. The Bible says there is no peace to the wicked. Sin empties us of meaning in life. The writer of Ecclesiastes, when viewing life apart from God, says vanity of vanity, all is vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness, everything is meaningless without God. Sin empties us of meaning. Sin empties us from peace, of our peace. Sin sin empties us of life. T.S. Eliot is considered one of the 20th century's most important poet, but he wrote this, this poem called The Hollow Men. He says, we are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices when we whisper together are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. I could hardly think of a more potent description of life without God, the meaninglessness, the chaos, the formlessness, the emptiness. That's what this is. Sin always disorders. It always empties. And what God wants to teach us is that he is at work to bring order to the chaos and to bring filling and fullness to what has been emptied because of sin. That's what God does. God doesn't want this world to be a world of chaos. He doesn't want people to have that God-shaped vacuum in their hearts. He wants them to be ordered and full, and that's what this is teaching us. This is teaching us not only what God did then, but it also teaches us what God continues to do. He brings order to what has been disordered by sin. He brings filling to what has been emptied because of sin. I'll give you a few examples in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then I'll make a couple applications to this. We see this in the Old Testament. In the wilderness, God instructed his people to build a tabernacle. That is a tent they can be in to be in the presence of God. And the Bible tells us that after all the ordering, all the organizing that had to take place to build this tent, when the tent was finally completed, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The same thing happened after Solomon, King Solomon built the temple. I mean, he shipped these logs all the way from Cyprus and he brought in massive stones that had been quarried from a distance and he put these together and his workers put put these together. They brought order to this and when it had been ordered and organized and arranged and when there was the form and the Bible tells us that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. You see, order leads to fullness And God is on a mission to restore what has been disordered and to fill what has been emptied. That's what God does. In the New Testament, in the life of Jesus, we see a similar thing happening. His miracles, he's bringing order what has been disordered. He's bringing sight to the blind and and hearing to the deaf and speech to the mute and leaping to the lame. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's taking these things that have been rendered chaotic by sin and he's healing them. He's ordering them and then he's filling them. He filled people's hungry stomachs with food. Now, this truth that God is a God who forms and fills should be a truth that overcomes suspicions in our minds that God's boundaries are bad, 
that the identifications that he's put on various aspects of nature are bad and it should overcome our suspicions. See, God didn't put boundaries for our, our ill, for our bad. He did it for our good. He's a God who brings order and fullness. His boundaries are like the sides of a well to hold water in. His boundaries are like the edges of a canvas to make a beautiful painting, like the rhythm of music. These boundaries are meant for our flourishing and our thriving and not to harm us. But there's always a deep suspicion in our hearts about this. There's always a suspicion, is God really good? Are these boundaries really right? Will he really fill me or is, this, or is there some fullness and goodness to be enjoyed outside of God. This suspicion that God's boundaries are not good and that he can't really fill us is what is behind every sin. It's what's behind, yeah, the sin that you and I have committed this past week and the sins that we're tempted to commit in the week to come. This sneaking suspicion, maybe the the boundaries of who God has made me to be, the family that he's put me in right now, the circumstance of my life. Maybe these are bad boundaries. Maybe I should try to erase these boundaries, draw new boundaries, and seek for fullness outside of God. That's always our temptation. So the question is, how is God going to overcome this temptation and this inclination and the skepticism in our own minds? Because we have, to, we have to realize this. We are not inanimate matter. We're thinking, we're feeling, we're volitional beings. How, how in the world is God going to bring order and fullness to our lives when we suspect his boundaries to be bad and his fullness to be insufficient. And that brings us to the third division of this message is that how God does this, how God forms and fills. Okay, that's what he did in creation. He, he formed and then he, he created spaces and then he filled them with life, but how does God do that now? And the answer is hinted at in our text. Actually, more than hinted at. We have the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, and then we have God speaking. That is God's spirit and God's word. God's word brings order, and his spirit brings life. That is what God does. Throughout the ages, Christian theologians were right to see the Trinity, that is God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in these opening three verses of the Bible. Because here you have God the Father speaking, his spirit hovering over the face of the waters like a fluttering dove ready to bring life to what is disordered and chaotic. And then you have the spoken word. And in John chapter 1, the opening verse of John, there are deliberate echoes of Genesis 1 where John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were created by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. And the question is, okay, how does God bring order to what is disordered and fullness to what has been emptied by sin? Here is how he does it. He sends his Son who sends his Spirit. That's how God does it. He sends his, his son, Jesus Christ, the Spirit-anointed Son of God, who as the resurrected Lord now has the authority to put his life-giving Spirit into anyone who will swear allegiance to him as their King and Savior. That's how he brings order to the world. That's how he brings fullness to the world. It's through his word and his Spirit. 
Notice how God does this, though. How did Jesus bring this order? Look at the disorder of our lives. Look at the disorder of your habits, of your family. Look at the chaos that has been wrecked by sin, my sin and your sin. Look deeper into the suspicion of your own heart and think, well, how can I trust this God? Well, what God does to bring order, he does it in the most astounding way. He woos and wins our hearts by proving him to be a good, himself to be a good and loving God. What did Jesus do? Jesus, the one who brought order and life at the very beginning of creation, is the one who, when he entered our creation, brought upon himself the disorder and emptiness that our sin brings about. Look at what happened on the cross. Jesus, the sinless son of God, disorder. He is called a blasphemer and a criminal. That's disorder. He's falsely accused. He's bereft of justice. Look what happens. Here is a sinless person, and he's crucified among two thieves. That's disorder. He takes that upon himself. The Bible tells us that he emptied himself, and he took upon himself a human nature. Uh, He became a human being, and he became a a servant. The Bible tells us that at one point in his earthly ministry, before he went to the cross, he actually shed his garments so that he could put on a servant's towel and wash the dirty feet of his disciples. Look at this emptying. Look finally at this emptying that happened on the cross when he gazed up to heaven and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's deep mystery in this, my friends, but somehow Jesus was emptied even of his relationship with his Father temporarily so that we can receive that fullness. And finally, in the end, the Bible tells us he breathed out his spirit. Jesus emptied of everything so that he could fill us. God brings order and fullness by sending his own Son who then reorders, rebuilds our lives and doesn't just create boundaries and spaces but fills it. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. See, Jesus has come to order and his spirit has come to fill your life. That's what he wants to do. This is because God is for you. This is how God brings order to what has been disordered by sin and fullness to what has been emptied by sin. You remember I said that suspicion that we harbor in our minds about God's boundaries that he's created. Jesus totally demolished those, those suspicions by, by saying, this all is for your good and I'm proving it to you by pouring out my life for you. How could you doubt him? How could you ever doubt him? So trusting in Jesus is what brings order to what is disordered, to bring shape to what is without form. And that means that your love can be reordered. See, if you don't know what Jesus has done for you and the depth to which he went for you, how he plunged himself into the watery deeps on your behalf, unless you understand that, you'll always be harboring that suspicion about God. But once you embrace that, once you take that into your heart, then your love will be reordered and you will not be able to find anything more lovable than God himself because there is no one more lovely than God himself because there's no one else who would give himself more for you than God himself gave for you. So that's why I say trusting in Jesus reorders your loves. It could be right now that your loves are so disordered because you put something else at the very center of your life. You put something else on the top of the list of, of, of loves and now in faith in Jesus that your love for God comes at the very top again and everything else can find its order. Trusting in Jesus can reorder your truth. 
Remember I said that the disorder of sin mixes truth and, 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 uh, and error. What are some of the biggest lies we tell? The biggest lies we tell are about ourselves because we don't want to admit that we're wrong or sinful. And most of our lying is meant to construct a kind of false facade about ourselves. Trusting in Jesus, it reorders your truth because it frees you to admit the very worst about yourself. And that is you're a sinner that is so deeply flawed, Jesus had to die for you. And that's the truth. Ah, uh, yes, but we need not tell the truth with a sense of despair because we say, but he did die for me because he loved me. Jesus allows you to reorder. Trusting in Jesus reorders your truth. And because of that, your behavior can be reordered too because if you can trust that God loves you, that his boundaries that he's placed in your lives are good and that the shape that he's given your life is good, then you can obey him too. And trusting in Jesus is also what brings the filling of the Spirit, and with the Spirit brings all the benefits of the Christian life. Jesus said, this is from John chapter 7, verses 38 through 39, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus is saying this, believe in me, and you get a source of not just energy, but the, the ability to to bear the fruit that God wants of us. Out of you will flow an endless supply of fullness, rivers of living water. That's what Jesus gives to those who trust in him. It's the spirit of God. That's why Paul writes in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Because trusting in Jesus brings about the filling of the spirit, you can be full of love full of love in two senses, full of God's love for you, you can be fully convinced of that because the spirit of God within you keeps reminding you you are loved because Jesus died on the cross. So you can be full of God's love for you, but also in return you then can be full of your love for God. You see, Jesus filling you with his spirit allows you to be full of love. And then from that, it allows you to love other people. It also means that you can be full of joy because your eternal destiny is secure. It's not a flippant sort of surface kind of joy plastering a smile over your face. No, this is a deeper sort of joy that can coincide even with sobbing, even with tears. It's a joy that only Christ gives because you are deeply rooted in him. Trusting in Jesus also brings the filling of the spirit, which means you can be full of peace. Peace with God the peace of God, peace in difficult circumstances, and peace with other people. And in these astonishing words, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19, it means that you can be filled with all the fullness of God. To be honest, I don't know everything that really means, but it certainly means this, that God is a God who forms and fills. God takes what is disordered and chaotic, and he, through the work of his Son and Spirit, reorders, forms, and fills, and we get that by trusting in Jesus.